Hello, everybody. Just a very quick one about Instagram. If you're on it, Meta, the parent company, is reducing the number of political posts visible to users on their feed. This is a real thing, not a hoax. So go to your Instagram profile, tap the three horizontal lines in the top right corner to open the settings tab, scroll down to what you see, click on content preferences, open political content, and turn on don't limit political content. That's an option. Otherwise, you won't see almost anything we post because we are deemed political. Please do that now or you won't even see the posts about our shows, our fun things. So if you want to see Guilty Feminist content and know when we're coming to a place near you, releasing a new podcast, do it now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com This episode of The Guilty Feminist is brought to you by the razor-sharp, witty and fun novel Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid, Waterstone's fiction book of the month. Available now in paperback. I'm a feminist, but Prince Philip in The Crown is sexy as fuck. <gasps> Both Matt Smith and Tobias Menzies, they are doing so much for that man before he dies. I'm telling you. Tobias Menzies is a very old friend of mine. He's like a brother. We wrote a screenplay together. He is so like my bro. Like, and I've met Matt Smith a few times. Don't fancy him at all. Didn't fancy him as Doctor Who. No, if you're listening, Matt Smith, you're a very attractive man. But I don't, it's not like I've ever had the hots for Matt Smith. Something about those men playing that role, both of them, I'm like, oh my God, the flirtation, the chemistry, the pop, pop, pop between him and Olivia Coleman. I mean, my God, it's full on. So I've decided I don't, it's not those men I fancy. I clearly fancy Prince Philip. That's clear. Wow. I know. Well, I can't <laughs> explain it any other way. It is not my fault. They've done it. It's not your fault. And remember, it's fiction. So you don't have to, you fancy the idea of the match. Thatcher? Is Thatcher hot? I'm not watching The Crown. Oh, oh, Richard Sandling, who's a comedian, when it was first announced that Gillian Anderson was going to be playing Margaret Thatcher, he tweeted, I'm not going to lie, lads, that's going to be an uphill wank. <laughs> oh, <laughs> God, the phrase so uphill much. wank, I love it. It's both athletic and erotic. I am um, <laughs> a feminist, but the condiment shelf of my all-female house share has a spice blend called cock seasoning. Uh, yes, it is cock seasoning. I've not yet tasted it. I wish I had prior to this record, but I've not yet mm -hmm. tasted cock seasoning. I just like imagining what it will make my food taste like. So if I like sprinkle it, if it's like one of those spice blends that makes everything taste like bacon, like, is it going to be unusually meaty? Is it going to have like an umami 
uh, sort of flavour to it. But every day I look at cock seasoning and every day I hold back. I mean, <laughs> I would never dare. But please, I would like you to dare. And please let the listeners know and be WhatsApp me and tell me how it went down. What cock tastes like. Yeah. All puns intended. I imagine cock will go down extremely smoothly. <laughs> oh God, please. I'm so glad this will be edited. <laughs> we'll just hear my shame. But I not can't that imagine comment. that'll be edited out. Um, why would we waste that gold Uh, I'm a feminist but I am so tired and burnt out this week if I could get a man to do my work by saying but I'm only a little tired girl I totally would that was the sound of me uh, clapping I'm a feminist but when my friend told me that her little dog was mainly good with people but got scared around strange men I thought lol same <laughs> I'm a feminist, but recently someone subtweeted about a comedian who was also a feminist and said something that wasn't nice about them. And someone said, Oh, yeah, some people online were saying that might be you. And I was really upset. And I was like, Oh my God. And they said, Oh, no, no, no. They said it, they said it could be, people were speculating it could be all of these people and named all these well-known British female comedians who also identified as feminists. And as soon as they said that, I went, oh my God, thank God I made the list. Thank God (laughs) people thought I was relevant enough to be subtweeted about. At first I was genuinely upset. I was like, my God, what are people saying about me? It's so not true. And then I was like, I wouldn't wouldn't, wouldn't like, it's only one thing worse than being subtweeted about. That's not being subtweeted about. Yeah, you want to be considered for the role of feminist bitch. You don't necessarily want that. You don't. You need it to be them that you hate. I don't but you want, want to be. it to be me, but I don't want no one to think it was. If there's like six nominees, I don't want to win, but it is an honour to be nominated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm a feminist, but I wish the new Mary Wollstonecraft statue had slightly less symmetrical tits. Oh, yeah. Now It's very near my home. There's a statue that's been erected, not of Mary Wollstonecraft, but for Mary Wollstonecraft. Very odd. Very odd. Very near odd. Near my home in London. Yes. And it's, it's, basic, it's basically a little Barbie. I've got no problem with the nudity, but I'm like, it's quite a regulation body. It's such a weird thing because they don't, you know, with men, they don't sort of think, oh, we'd like to make a statue for Shakespeare. Let's make him naked and tiny and far away and up on a thing. But it's not really Shakespeare. It's the idea of all men. I'm just like, no, give me a statue with Mary fucking Wollstonecraft. And can she look like Mary Wollstonecraft? And I think she should pop her cardi on. Oh, I would love to see the bard's wang on if anyone's contemplating a William Shakespeare Willie out statue. Oh, that's Willie Willie Shakespeare. Yeah, that's Willie it. Shakespeare. I mean, twenty twenty yeah. is the year that we learned that all statues are trash. So I don't I don't mind the statue. I just wish she had a a C and an E cup. Have you got another I'm a feminist butt? Um, I've got some that can be edited out. Uh, I've I'm oh I'm a feminist, but I can no longer completely trust anyone called Becky or Karen. There's quite a lot of people, even black Beckys and Karens. I'm like. Why would you name yourself after a thing? Yeah, I do think people called Karen get upset about it because I wouldn't like it. If the term was Deborah, I'd be upset. I'd be upset. But also at the same time, it's a shorthand and I would try and take it in good humour and good grace. And I say that hoping Deborah does not become a, a super slow. <laughs> like if any of you listening, make Deborah the new name. If you couldn't. I'll hunt you down. If you couldn't. Definitely don't make it Sophie because we've got two Sophies on today and they will... They will come and find you. I'll come find you. I will, I will come find you. 
with a life-size model of Mary Wollstonecraft. From a variety of kitchens and bedrooms via Zoom, The Spontaneity Shop presents The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis-White, guest co-host Sophie Duca, and our very special guest, Sophie Williams, talking about identity. Woo! Yay! Yeah! I'm a thousand people applauding. Yes, you are, Sophie Duca. This is The Guilty Feminist, the podcast in which we explore our noble goals as 21st century feminists and the hypocrisies and insecurities which undermine them. I'm Deborah Francis-White, with me is Sophie Duca, and we are talking about identity. Hello, Sophie Duca. How are you? Or rather, who am I? Yes, uh, is identity. identity right? Boom. Oh. Uh, boom. Uh, I'm, I mean, I am fine, but I am also uh, me. Uh, I've, I've started off really existential and instantly regretting it. I wish I'd just gone in with a, I'm a mixed bag and in the weird and wonderful world of um, the apocalypse. Well, this is the question I've got for you. Um, and before I ask it, I'm going to say that normally our very special guest, Sophie Williams, would be sitting in the audience, but uh, she is here on our Zoom. So uh, feel free, before I introduce you properly with your full glowing, throbbing CV that you have here, if you're listening, you may have heard about a Sophie Williams. If you're not listening to this podcast, it's not. this isn't for you. But if you are <laughs> listening to this podcast, you'll have heard me just say Sophie Williams, our guest, and I will introduce her properly in a bit, but just as she can heckle, chip in, laugh, uh, say anything she wants to in the meantime. Sophie is the author of Anti-Racist Ally and the Upcoming Millennial Black, a look at black women's intersectional identities. So hello, Sophie Williams. Hi. Hey. So Sophie Duker, this is the question I've got for you. And Sophie uh-huh. Williams, please feel free to chip in. Do you feel your identity has changed through lockdown? Oh, wow. Thank you for asking. Um, I mean, in a trivial way, I made some blondies. I did not identify as a baker formally. Uh, So I guess in that small way, my identity has shifted to someone who knows about curd. It was passion fruit curd. The blondies were delicious. Mm. It was a success. In lockdown, I, I actually think, I mean, there's ways that my identity has had to change, but I think it's really established stuff that I wasn't sure of. For instance, I do love people and I Mm. love events and both those things have really had to come down. Not having those things have made me realize how much I'd built them into the fabric of my life. And now I've had to find ways of doing with a much reduced service. Similarly, I have baked for the first time in many years. Henry Bird from the last season of Great British Bake Off asked me to do a bake along for Choose Love on Instagram Live. Sounds like incredible pressure. Just people watching you maybe make errors. Well, like you, I also miss people. So frankly, people watching me do anything at the moment and chipping in on the comments, I'll take it. I'll take it. It must be like believing in God, like having someone constantly watching you. (laughs) Exactly like that. Are there any OnlyFans baking accounts where you just bake? I've never been on OnlyFans, but is there a way that I could do an OnlyFans baking account? Because I would do that. I think you can totally do it. And I think the market is undersaturated, if anything. <laughs> <laughs> Under, well, undersaturated. That might be for a reason. It's a dry, is that more dry Twitch? Market. Is that yeah, more Twitch? Twitch is very much baking. Twitch is, OnlyFans tends to be a bit more sexy, doesn't it? Yeah, OnlyFans is a bit saucy, pardon the pun. But Twitch, you're not allowed to show, I've done some tit- Twitch streams as a guest. I thought you were allowed- saying tit streams then. <laughs> done- done- you're not allowed to show, I've done some tit stream, Twitch streams. Twitch streams. 
No, I was uh, as I was tuned into the channel of people uh, in the chat of the audience, and they were like, "She's going to show a nipple." I, I thought I'd be a, a feminist, or not a feminist, someone who uh, is unencumbered by underwear, and I thought I'd do a Twitch guest spot, not wearing a bra. But I think everyone was very anxious that I had accidentally flashed a nipple, and then the <gasps> whole thing would get shut down. Apparently, you're also not allowed to show your feet. What? Because feet Foot can fishes. be very sexual. There are all these weird sites out there where people, not weird, I shouldn't say that's judgmental, sorry. There are, I'm going to say that again. Let's say awesome sites. Say relatable sites. I'm just going to say sites. There are a lot of sites, aren't there, where celebrities' feet are judged. Yeah. It's it's a kink, yeah? Yeah, they're awesome, relatable sites. And um, (laughs) (laughs) it is, I think it's really hard to maintain good foot care. I went for my first medical pedicure. I think this is the thing. I mean, that just made me sound so unrelatable and terrible. I went for a medical pedicure and feet are the kinds of things that you just like, I shove ham-fistedly into shoes and ignore all the time. And like watching someone whose job literally is to make your feet as healthy and happy as possible, look at my feet was a very humbling experience. Wow. What, What is a medical pedicure? So a medical pedicure is, I think normal pedicures is like when you get, not normal pedicures, um, like cosmetic pedicures is when you sort of get someone to look at your feet and they put like different colours on them in acrylics and you like tap, tap everywhere like a little velociraptor. So it's yeah. mainly about how it looks. Yeah. But I think basically it felt like going to the dentist for my feet. She got out <gasps> a lot of very exotic machinery, sort of buffed my heels, told me about different dry skin problems. And I had, which has now cleared up, um, uh, I think it was athlete's foot on mm. one of my feet because I'm an athlete and not because I'm disgusting. And um, <laughs> yeah, I think it's just, I think it's just sort of dealing with that thing. I think, I don't know. I think there was a lot of, I'm not going to say trauma because it really wasn't that serious, but like a lot of lack of care, like dry skin and stuff on my feet. And it was just nice to feel, nice to feel baby soft again. Although obviously I'm not a baby, I'm a mature athlete, but. A mature athlete. Yes, absolutely. Can you get a medical pedicure on the NHS? Oh, no, 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 no. This was something that I have been debating doing for um, about uh, two years. <laughs> and it was, uh, how much was it? I think it's 80 quid. So it's obviously wow. like insane. I was going to see how much better it was than a normal pedicure. Because mm. uh, I don't really get manicures or pedicures. And I nearly cried the first time I, I thought I was getting a manicure, but they did shellac on my nails. Because mm. uh, I thought it would make them fall off. <sighs> Oh, no, my nails are much weakened from shellac. It is to be avoided. And yes, I love it. Because when you've had it done for two weeks, they look shiny and perfect. And then it chips off and you realise your nails are half strength. It's it's a terrible (laughs) cycle. But then you want to cover those half strength nails so they look pretty. Do you know what you cover them in? Shellac. Shellac, yeah. A vicious, endless circle. But part of my identity, I think, in the olden times, BC, before COVID, I was quite glam. Yeah, I, was, I think of you as a glam, a glam, glam fan. I am a glam fan. I have very femme gender expression, and I like glamming. And it's fallen away. If for a long time, I resisted it. I pushed back, but now I'm actually comfortable looking at my own face without makeup on. And or I mean, I was always comfortable looking at my own face at home, but I am comfortable coming on the Zoom with nothing on. I'm comfortable going to the shop with it on. It's just standards have lowered and I have lowered with them. And, and I think it's a good thing that I'm comfortable with my regular face. That's a good thing. That's positive. I mean, sure, sure. We, we all like to look at our own faces from time to time. But do well, you I mean, think that you will revert when you can go outside and be glam again? Probably. I mean, probably. Because do we really learn anything as people? Do we get wiser or do we just get older? Do we live and learn or do we just live? 
Oh, wow. <laughs> this is too, I mean, I think we stay the same. I think that's the, we get older, we look glam, and then we die. I think, I don't know. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I hope, I hope that I have more option now to just, I'd love to be able to just go, I don't see why I can't just turn up to a meeting with the face that nature gave me when I came out of the womb and turn up to that meeting and sell myself and have an interesting conversation and leave without liquid eyeliner and covering over to make my skin all look the same colour and all of that. I don't see why I'm not allowed to do that. You are allowed to. I, I will back you in that. People will remark when you do put makeup on that you look so, like the shock will be greater when you put on makeup. Uh, but I think you'll I think It you'll does make a maybe. huge difference though. I don't know. 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 I think I will always still perform with makeup on but I like to think that I'll be able to just go to meetings and go, this is my face. If you don't like my face, you don't want what my face has to say. If you don't like me at my face, you don't deserve me at my glam fam. Exact Monday. So you actually, I'm going to do a challenge for today's podcast. I'm not going to do it right now. I'm going to do it later after we've talked to our brilliant guest. Mm-hmm. But uh, you set me a challenge that challenged my identity ages ago and you told me to do it and I never did it. And you nudged me and I never did it. Do you know what that challenge was? I know exactly what that challenge was. What I was it? invented a challenge, the, yeah. the nudes challenge. That's right. I challenged you to take a nude. And then I, post I, I did, it. But I had to post, post it. No, you said I had to post like three or five nudes. It was which five was too nudes much. because people kept on nominating me to run 5K which I think ah. is a particularly violent and aggressive thing to do to somebody. And I, <laughs> it's a hostile act. It is a hostile act. I was like, I don't need this aggression. We are living through a pandemic. It's a difficult no. time. Whereas no. most people have bodies. Um, most people have a smartphone. And I think it's a lot more accessible to be like, take a beautiful, appreciative photo of your body. Mm-hmm. Didn't have to be explicit, Deborah. I didn't ask for pornographic pictures of yourself, but just a little... Cheeky. Just a little, just a little cheek. Just a well, little I cheek. thought I'd do it in the bath, and then I can That's have such bits, a good idea sort of coming out. But I, I bottled it, and also I thought, who's going to take it? Tom didn't seem very interested in taking it, if I'm completely <laughs> honest, because I'd already made him uh, video me in the bath reading out Raven Smith's book, and I think he was. I was like, now can you take discreet and glamorous <laughs> nudes of me? He was like. Listen, I've got a spag ball on. I can't be just photographing you <laughs> nude at all hours of the day and night. It was in the first deep lockdown when we only oh, yeah. had each other. And I, I didn't want to upset that particular apple cart because there was no one else. No, so, I, um, But I now I am going to do it. I may, I'm going to try and do it myself because I, I need to know as I explore my ever-growing identity and relationship with my body through Zoom, through dancing and moving it more and connecting with it more through the whole of the chaotic nature of 2020. I think I'm ready to take your challenge on. So I'm going to do it today. Where do I post the nudes, Sophie? Okay, so I would accept you posting nudes to any social, but I think Instagram's probably the best one. Although this- they block you for the dip nipples. No, but you don't have to show your nipples. So I have a whole thesis on nudes. By thesis, I mean pamphlet that I uh, sold for charity. Um, so basically, you just need naughty the nip rule, ironically enough, naughtiness, intrigue, and pose. You just need like a hint of something that is maybe something you're not meant to see, and that could be just like a clavicle. Uh, intrigue, so like you've styled it, there's a sort of question going on there, and it's not like it's not an accident. You've not sort of dropped the phone and it's upskirted yourself. It has to right. be intentional. So 
Not yeah. an accidental upskirting, no, an yeah, accidental self-upskirting. Okay. Don't I accidentally think sort of... chope yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So I'm going to I'm gonna do, if you could show me some samples and I'm going to do it later today, then I'm going to record the response. Do I put them on my Instagram stories? Yeah, I think put them on your Instagram stories. That way you don't have to be, you could even make a fleet of them, Deborah. <laughs> oh, fucking <laughs> um, hell. I don't I've want not... more things. Okay, Fleets I've not... now. Fleets. I'm not engaged with fleets. They're, they're like tweet stories. Is that what they are? Yes. It's like a fleeting thought, so a fleeting tweet. But to be honest with you, this social media, this sharing, this amplifying, this engaging, this, you know, thanking people who've retweeted you, whatever, it's a full-time unpaid job. I do not need fleets and TikToks. I don't need more. I don't want a promotion. I already can't do this job and my job. I don't want to be promoted to senior manager. No, yeah, not interested. Yeah. But I will do this because I do do stories. I'm so excited about your nude story. I this am, is- and I'm going to see what identity I've got. Okay. Hello, Guilty Feminists. It's Deborah. I'm interrupting the podcast briefly to let you know that the Instant Sunday Times and New York Times bestseller about the messy dynamics of privilege, long-listed for the Booker 2020 Prize. What is that, you might ask? Uh, It's called Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reid. I've started it and I've only put it down to tell you all about it. When a mirror is apprehended at a supermarket for kidnapping a child, she's babysitting. It sets off an explosive chain of events. Her employer, Alex, a feminist blogger with the best of intentions, resolves to make things right. Such a Fun Age was a blockbuster must-read debut in 2020 in hardback. It hit number two on the Sunday Times bestseller list in its first week and number three on the New York Times bestseller list. It has over 40,000 five-star reader reviews online, one of the most talked about and recommended books of 2020. It's been picked by Waterstones as the fiction book of the month for January 2021. You should read it, but first of all, you'll have to buy it. Go do that right now. Our guest today is a leading anti-racism advocate, activist, and the author of Anti-Racist Ally and the Upcoming Millennial Black, a look at black women's intersectional identities. She is also the co-founder of Culture Heroes, a non-profit organization dedicated to raising non-white representation at a senior level in the advertising and the creative industries. And she runs Blanket Fort, a micro-agency providing high-quality bespoke marketing and production support to shows such as The Crown. Mm-hmm. And she hasn't paid me to say any of the things I've said already. And the end of the fucking world. Please welcome Sophie Williams. Yes. And the crowd goes wild. The crowd goes wild. If you're at home, please be going wild. So Sophie Williams, you have a lot of strings to your bow and uh, a lot of important strings to your bow. Could you tell us first about the book that's already out, which is Anti-Racist Ally? Yeah. So Anti-Racist Ally um, is a book, as you say, that's already out. It is a small pocket-sized guide for how people who aren't racially marginalised can use that privilege to uplift the experiences of people who have been marginalised. And I think potentially one of the most interesting things about it is that it was an absolute accident. I wrote it this year um, when I was meant to be finishing off Millennial Black, which comes out next year, which I already had the deal for. But I sort of made some posts on my Instagram 
And they sort of went from having maybe two or 300 followers to quickly having like 10, 20, 40,000 followers, which showed me that there was like an audience of people who wanted to have this anti-racism conversation. So I was able to go to HarperCollins and just say, you know, the book that I meant to give you next week, could we hold off on that? Because I got something else I just have to do pretty quickly. Um, so yeah, it's a little um, hopefully helpful, but definitely accidental piece of work. <laughs> Great. Absolutely incredible. And there was, there is, of course, this year, an enormous desire uh, for a book called Anti-Racist Ally. Could you tell us some of what the listeners would expect to read if they bought it? Yeah. And also buy it. As I say, it's very small. So it's uh, probably just under 200 pages, but it's pocket sized. And every section is either a question with an answer, like, isn't racism over with an answer about like, why? No, obviously it's not. Or a question like, what is systemic racism? And a little explanation. So it sort of lays the groundwork for what is um, racism? What does racism look like now? And then gives, and I think this is the most essential part, it gives actionable, tangible tips that people can use. So how to be an ally in your workplace, how to be an ally in your social circle, in your home, how to be an economic ally. So just like really giving step by step, really easy to take on bits of information about how you can be a better ally. That is perfect. Everyone I know is getting that for Christmas because I want short stuff. I really, really want short stuff now. I've got this big pile of books by my bed and it's intimidating and I want something short. I want something light. I want something I can take with me. Mm. Could you give us some of the tips to be a social ally? Because I think in a working situation, I have really like, I felt entitled to kind of go to bat and go, one time I was making a video with some really nice people, but the work that I had asked them to do before I got there to host it hadn't been done. And I said, I can't really go forward unless it is done because it isn't right. But I felt like because it was a work situation, I could do that because there was some structure to it. Socially, I find that much more difficult. Mm. Um, families within generations, I feel like I can have that conversation because again, I'm talking across a divide, but socially peer to peer, how do you have that conversation? without making things awkward or do you just lean in and go this is going to be awkward yeah I mean one thing about me is I've never been good at picking my battles so I don't really care if things are awkward mm -hmm. um, <laughs> that to me isn't like a deciding factor about whether I should say or do something to me sort of doing what I believe to be right is a more important factor in that but in the book it's things like it starts in the social setting of what does your social circle look like are you only um, friends with people who look like you, who have the same sort of backgrounds and experiences as you. Because that's really easy to do. And often you can do that without realising it. So it's first just like looking at who is around you. And then it's really important, I think, to do this work, which, as we say, can be quite draining, can be quite emotionally difficult. It's about building that support system. So you're much more likely to do one thing and then give up if you're just mm. doing it on your own. But if you can build like an accountability buddy, if you can have a group of friends who are reading a book at the same time as you or going to go to protests with you or whatever that is, just having that group of people around you is really useful. And then I think it's also really interesting to understand that that social group and that family group, they're probably the most easy wins for you. They're probably the people whose opinion you can change much more easily than I can change it. Me putting something on Instagram is probably not going to change your mum's opinion, but you mm. talking to her about it might. 
So it's just about sort of having that accountability and understanding that even if it feels like you're not doing anything, those relationships are really available for us to make big and impactful changes in. Mm, that's that's interesting. Um, Sophie. Yes. Duke. Oh, sorry. I, I, you can I call just, me Duke. I was just, uh, Duke. I was just handing over to you. My, do you know what? I've got friends who call me the Duke. Oh, well, uh, I feel I feel hurt and confused by that. What, you call before me Duke I Box? met you, because I lie on the sofa with my laptop writing, but I lie back, I'm always reclined. And so Hannah Gadsby and her friend used to call me Marmaduke, like Marmaduke the cartoon dog. And oh. that turned into the Duke. But it was before I knew you, so it's okay. Yeah, no, it's it still fine. Is, it still is a nickname for some a certain circle of people in my life. That, and I walk into the pub, they go, it's the Duke. <laughs> If this episode has taught us anything, is that two excellent people can have the same name. So don't worry about it. <laughs> that is true. Don't that is worry true. about it. I'm happy for Sophie to take the primary, Sophie. I'm happy to defer, be the better, better, beta, beta. I like beta, that Sophie. when you say Sophie, though, you could mean either of us, but I could say Duke and mean either of you. Like there's some <gasps> strong crossover going on. Yes. Ooh. Is there anything that you could call both of us, both you and Sophie Williams, any term that I could throw at you. What's your middle oh. name, Sophie? Uh, Amanda Josie. Oh, I was hoping it started with F because I get called DF Dubs and I thought you could be SF Dubs, but we could, you know, no. I'll make um, it my personal challenge to to find something that links you. Perfect. Name-wise. I mean, I've really limited myself. <laughs> a name thing that links you. Given this is about identity, we'd really appreciate that. Yeah. I'll um, think of a little term. Indeed. Uh, I, I think it's also, I feel like... I feel very excited by the fact that with Anti-Racist Ally, you sort of recognised that it was something that needed to happen now. And also, I think it's quite like mm. a boss move to be like, uh, you know, that thing that that's going to happen. But it's <laughs> the thing that people need, because I think there has been such a lot of like, I mean, like not, this is not necessarily a bad thing, but a sort of because there's been such a huge global response to anti-blackness. People are like, what can we do now? And mm. people are being sort of called upon that necessarily don't have the energy or resources to give like coherent, calm, structured answers or don't want to. And there's people are sort of trying to find, yes, yeah, trying to find something that is clear, that is concise, and that is practical, that can actually work. Because I think sometimes people can be like, can you just go and read these, like this academic theory, mm. which everyone should do. But some people don't have the time. Some people just need something so that they can talk to their racist yeah. relatives racist or uncle, yeah. partner. Yeah. But don't mm -hmm. worry, I've read the academic pieces and I've made it really easy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's the thing. People can think that these discussions are things that only happen or only need to happen between like people who like speak in like a very elevated way or are in a certain kind of social circle. But I think when it's broken down, it's something that can be applied anywhere whether it's very lofty or complicated or emotional or personal. So that is, yeah, that is fun. Um, I heard you speaking as part of an online festival called Prima Donna, I think. Oh, yeah. Which makes me think of um, the Phantom of the Opera. Shall I sing a bit of Phantom of the Opera? Please. Don't say we don't have time. Oh, no, I'm not no. saying that. I'm saying we've got, we've got all the time, time well. actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God. What's, what's the bit where it's like, Prima Donna, first lady of the stage. It's I don't happening. know any of the other bit. 
Yeah, thank you. Oh my god, I love the I, I love musicals so much, and I I think that's the theme of this episode: musicals. Deborah, is that? Mm-hmm. It is definitely was it musicals. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and weirdly, I just watched the episode of The Crown where Princess Diana sings something from Phantom of the Opera. This is all coming together. Is that true? Are you are you? Is nope. that a fiction? It is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. I think both, she sings. Deborah, can I just say you have a beautiful voice? I think. Oh, thank I think that, you. I think oh. that should be incorporated into your OnlyFans. Anti-racist <laughs> ally. Baking and show tunes. Um, but this festival was called Prima Donna. There was very little singing, but there was some chat about publishing. And mm. the thing that was said in that is, I wasn't sure whether you were talking specifically about Anti-Racist Ally or your upcoming book. But what I think some people who initially rejected the book said was that um, the market had already been cornered in a way or that they already had that book that mm-hmm. book already existed and I think they said it with reference to Slay in Your Lane yeah can you talk a bit about that so that was about Millennial Black mm-hmm. so like everyone else I sort of made my proposal and then worked with my agent to put that out to people and there were loads of people who were interested which um, actually sounds more braggy than I realized before it came out of my mouth but there were also lots of people who said no thank you And if anyone's thinking of writing a book, that is normal and that will happen to you and that doesn't matter. You just have to keep on doing what it is that you think is the right thing to do. But the reason that we got a lot of those no thank yous was, as you say, people saying that the market is saturated, um, which I found really strange because I wanted to write Millennial Black because I couldn't find any books that specifically talked about being black in the workplace. Um, So when pressed, everyone said, oh, no, this is a saturated market because Slay in Your Lane exists. Now, if you imagine how many books there are about baking or Churchill or anything else like that, like we don't say that because there's one, that market is done, but one book about blackness, which wasn't about blackness at work, meant that my book, which is about blackness and womanness at work, There was no market available for it because obviously as black women, we have everything we need. We have Slay in Your Lane. Why would we want anything else? And I think that's really interesting because, yeah, we don't treat any other category in that way. We don't say, well, you've got one and that's plenty. Hopefully that will start to change. I can see that publishing is sort of giving more representation to black writers than has happened historically. But I don't know if I think that that's going to continue next year or in two years or when this sort of cultural moment dies down. Um, So yeah, I thought that was really interesting that one book was enough for a whole group of women. It's like we got the book. We did it. We solved racism (laughs) in publishing. Yeah, yeah, we fixed it. It's cool. Sorted. And Yomi and Elizabeth are friends of ours and have come on the podcast to talk about Slay in Your Lane and it's a brilliant book and they are absolutely brilliant. But I don't think either they would say, they wouldn't go, well, that's the book now. Of Mm. course, you want different perspectives and different views as you say. Also, how many business books are there by white straight men? I mean, you cannot walk through an airport without hitting about 25 business books from white straight men falling on you. Like Mm -hmm. the idea that there can be one from black women and then that's the end of the conversation. But I love it when they say saturated. It's the same with like female driven projects on television. It's just like we've we've got our female driven scripted project this year. And you're like, and how many boy ones? I got once got an email saying we're a bit saturated girl wise at the moment. Oh, saturated. I mean, I would love to be saturated girl wise. Yeah. (laughs) And I wrote back and said, could you tell me percentage wise what saturation looks like? 
and they then wrote back a really sort of nice email going, oh, we're so sorry, blah, blah, blah. But they didn't, they just didn't address it. But they were like, we really wish you well. And obviously I was like, mm-hmm. Because saturation for black women writing business books as opposed to, you know, every single bloke who's ever done a deal is allowed to write a book. It's Why is that saturated? It's not, it's not even damp. And there's so many white women who get to work in that business space. There's so many white women who get to tell their work stories. And I yeah. think... The idea is, oh, but as a black woman, your experience must just be that woman experience. But we know that our race plays a really important part in how society treats us outside of the workplace. And it seems absolutely wild to imagine that that stops as soon as you step into a step to your desk. That's a really good point. Yes, even as I, as a white woman going up, because I mainly think, oh, well, all those books are written by men, but there's not. There's millions of Karen Brady's as well who get to write their book about Deborah Meadens who get to write their book about being a woman in business and there's millions of lean-ins and Mm. those kind of books as well. You're absolutely right. And I think Um, the interesting thing about a lean-in, for example, is it does position itself as a book for women and it doesn't even address race. But when you have advice like lean-in, use your voice, advocate for what you want, that hits different if you are a group who gets told that they are angry or aggressive if they ask for what they deserve. So it's not even that those books exist and we can just use them should we want to is that actually the advice that's put forward in books that don't have the intersectional perspective can actually be damaging when we don't have that understanding of how other groups are perceived mom deserves better than a drugstore card this mother's day surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mm. I have a question mm-hmm. to the other Sophie, the primary Sophie, the Alpha no. Sophie. Uh, my question to the Alpha Sophie in this episode is, so as Deborah said at the start, you've got lots of strings to your bow. You're like a cello of a person. You do lots of different things and have done lots of different things. And you've been a who, uh, COO. And now I assume, though I might be wrong because I think a lot of people who work in like media and creative industries or simply are just kind of starting something for themselves, such as like, writing and promoting a book I assume you're now doing like less of working in a corporate space but now that your like sort of work world has changed are you relieved to be out of like that setting is it easier is it harder like can you compare the two and how you found those two things yeah it's different it's very very different so when I was coup when I was COO in an advertising agency Advertising is super, super white. It's super, super male. It's super, super middle class. And I can't speak globally for advertising. That's what the um, experiences is like in London. 
And so when I was COO, I would have people in for meetings, for example, and they would presume that I was the person who was going to be making the coffee or taking the notes in the meeting. And so I'm glad to not be in a space where I have to keep asserting my right to be there, which is what sort of being in that space felt like. As you mentioned earlier, I was lucky enough to go and do some work at Netflix after I left that. And that was really nice, but I was doing that on a freelance basis. So I sort of got all the nice bits and the great snack cupboard without any of the sort of harder (laughs) bits of sort of working for a big corporation. But now, yeah, now I don't really know what my job is. I just sort of write stuff and talk to people. And that's interesting, but I am a very, very introverted person. I like I have both of you on my screen right now, but I'm looking at a plant instead because that is sort of more comfortable for me. Why is that plant um, so great? <laughs> I mean, you're all great, but the plant doesn't ask any questions or try and make eye contact with me. So fair um, enough. Fair enough. <laughs> fair, fine. Yeah. What a great um, plant. Um, so good. It's so good. Um, so yeah, um, can it's you different. tell us a bit about working? I'm not obsessed with the crown at all. I just yeah. happened to have finished it last night. So it sounds mm-hmm. like I am. What kind of things did you do for the crown and the end of the fucking world? Because we're fans of the end of the fucking world as well. End of the fucking world is so great, isn't it? And actually, so good. Charlie Koval, who is the writer and showrunner on it, is one of the first people I spoke to about allyship because she ran such an amazing set. And so, yeah, she was a real inspiration. But I didn't do sort of the sexy stuff that you might be imagining. So I came in, I think both shows, the seasons of those shows that I was working on had both wrapped before I started working on it because I was working from a marketing and social side of it. So um, making the assets, you know, working with people like Charlie loosely just to make sure that the showrunners and people like that are happy with it. Working with the researchers and people like that on The Crown because there is a companion series on social called Beneath the Crown, which gets into the real stories that inspired The Crown because I think Lots of people watch The Crown and are sort of, you know, Googling on the side to find out, like, how true is this bit? What really happened? So I was working on a companion piece there called Beneath the Crown, which was working with the writers, working with the researchers to tell some of the real stories that inspired those. I want to take you for dinner. I swear I'll bring a plant you can look at because I need to milk you for everything that was real and everything that wasn't. I'm into it. I'm excited. I feel you are now the mine of information I need having finished the crown this week. I feel like you can really easily fact check how hot Prince Philip is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You are my new favourite person, Sophie Williams. Millennial Black, tell us about Millennial Black. So Millennial Black is quite a different thing to what I've been doing this year, which is interesting because I thought it was going to be the only thing I was doing. So what I've done this year has been a diversion almost because Millennial Black is about the experience of working whilst both woman and black. And so I had imagined that I would spend all of my time talking to and about and with black women. But this year, because of this allyship conversation, I spent all of my time really talking to non-black people about the role that they can play, Mm -hmm. because I don't feel like it's on black women to be anti-racist allies. And so Millennial Black is really sort of a return to what I always wanted to be doing. And that is looking at both qualitative. So I'm speaking to people like Monroe Bergdorf and speaking to Candice Brathway and speaking to Naomi Aki, who's in the Star Wars films and in The End of the Fucking World, actually. Mm. So talking to these people about their lived experiences, talking about my lived experience in the workplace, but then also doing real um, 
real research-based work looking at the studies of what disproportionately affects black women and how we as business leaders can make changes to make that better. So I'm not saying to black women, here are the problems and here's what you need to change in yourself if you want to be successful. It's saying, here are the problems. I know people tell you that you're the problem, but you're not. This is a shared experience that we all have and people are gaslighting us in the same way that they always have. So here are the problems and here is what businesses need to do to change, to not only attract, but to retain this underrepresented group of people. Because here is the business benefit of having a more diverse company, especially at senior levels. So it's saying this is what's going on. Here's how you fix it. It's not on us to fix it. Wonderful. I cannot wait. Is there anything you'd like to read to us from Millennial Black or Anti-Racist Ally? So one of the early things that um, I do in Anti-Racist Ally is to talk people through um, why not being racist is not enough. And one of the early sections is called Racists are bad people. I'm not a racist. And that is the conversation around racism that most of us have heard since childhood is usually pretty one dimensional, very black and white. Racism is bad. People who are racist are bad. And you are a good person. So you're not racist. Since childhood, we've been building up our personal mental images of a racist, someone who is uncaring, violent, dangerous, hateful. You'd know one if you saw one and you'd definitely never be one. But it doesn't quite work like that in practice. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's not true that racism is bad. I can't believe I had to say that. Mm. But I'm also saying that the conversation is more nuanced than that. Simple, good, bad, binary, leave space for. Instead of helping marginalised groups, this good, bad, black, white binary has just made it hard for us to find the grey when it comes time to examine our own lives, actions and the systems that have benefited us along the way. Wonderful. So that is just like showing that we don't have to be out on the streets committing hate crimes to be part of a system that we need to be aware of and to be part of a potential change that we can make for the better. Indeed, indeed. That's a great way of putting it, though. I love that dichotomy of racism is bad and I'm a good person, so I couldn't be that. Mm. And that's our all of our desires to distance that, you know, like, it's, it's nothing to do with me. Get it off me. Get it off me. And as long as we're thinking like that, we can't solve the problem that we are part of if we are white or non-black, depending on the situation. We can't help but be part of a white supremacist system. And therefore, we need to analyse what our part is is in that mm. and be actively doing things to minimise our part in that or neutralise our part in that or rid ourselves of that part of ourselves and therefore do the work to be the opposite of that. And that feels like we have to acknowledge something at the top. And so that's a simple enlightening piece, but also it sounds like very accessible. You could read that to a kid and they'd go, okay, I'm, I'm with you, I'm on it. But mm. also it's just very clear cut down the line, a great present for someone in your family who might be struggling with those things or you think they don't want to engage but they need to i actually got a message from someone recently who because it's like quite a small cute pink book and they were saying that their son um who was like primary school age had seen it downstairs and been like what's that pink book can we read it and so now they're reading it together at bedtime so yeah i'd never imagined it as something that was for children because children are sort of not my area but yeah it, it seems quite accessible to them as well that's a really interesting um, 
other side to that book that you might not have considered before, but the reaches of it. Millennial Black, I guess by its title, like it sounds fancy, the title. I don't know, like Millennial Black sounds like expensive. I like it. Um, I like the title a lot. And I guess it kind of situates it like at the intersection of certain things. So obviously you've mentioned that it is mainly for black women, but also it being like millennial is sort of like a a thing that particularly appeals to me. And I don't know if that's maybe like this time or if that's like a direct thing. Do you think the way that people relate to race is changing? Do you think that this is a conversation that you can see like going down a certain path for like, say like Gen Z and below? And do you think there's like work like for millennials to do like specifically? Yeah, I think in terms of work, millennials and Gen Z have been overlooked for a long time. People just think that we're super young people. But the oldest millennials are in their early 40s now. The oldest Gen Z are 24 to 26. Like, these are not people who are going to start entering the workforce. This is the workforce. Mm. And I think one interesting thing that research has shown is that not only do Gen Z and millennials identify as non-white, whatever sort of intersection that might be, at a much higher percentage than any previous generation, they are also a much more sort of values-driven generation. And so they want to work for, buy from, engage with brands and companies and organizations that live up to the same values that they have. And so I hope that that means that this conversation has no choice but to gain traction and to make changes. Because if we're saying that more and more of these people are not white, more and more of these people are voting, whether that is where they spend their money, whether that is who they work for, whether that's literal votes in line with their values, then I hope that that does mean that the conversation will change. But I think we've all seen decades and decades and generations of this work, and we're still having the same conversations that maybe our parents were having and maybe their parents were having. And I think the thing to know is people often ask me, how will we know when we're done? How will we know when we fixed it? What are we looking for in the next year, six months? And like, we're not going to fix it in six months. If it were that easy, it would have been fixed. Mm. And I think we have to think, I'd love, I'd love to be more optimistic. I'd love to say by 2021, we're going to have fixed this. It's done. But I think we have to think more in terms of what I think of as geographic time or like, you know, generational time. We have to do things now, knowing that we probably actually won't see the outcomes of it. But knowing that all of the small, instrumental, you know, iterative steps that we make will hopefully have longer term benefits that we might not see the results of ourselves. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's always still stuff to fight back. Like as soon as progress is made, there are always people who have a sort of backlash against it. There's always mm-hmm. Nazis keep coming back, like little, little bigoted boomerangs, like people still feel like if they're losing something if progress is happening then they need to sort of restore what they think of as like a safer or more natural order of things so yeah 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 people feel i think threatened by it people feel threatened by the idea of equality and i think that that is something that we need to move forward against because equality for more people shouldn't mean anything less for you it should just mean a more even distribution and it should just mean there's more than enough to go around. There is so much. Um, so yeah, I think you're right. We need to take people out of that scarcity mindset where they want to fight back against the idea of losing something. Yeah, I think it's like in everything. And I know, Deborah, you probably feel this as well. Like if there's something, there's an opportunity for women, 
or there's like an opportunity for black people. Like people are like, uh, like everyone sort of panics because they're like, if we've got to get in, we've got to get this grant, we've got to get this show because they won't make another one. There's nothing. But I think that encourages people to make bad decisions and to view on people who are the people that would most naturally support them or help them as their competitors. Mm-hmm. Yes. And obviously you can get help from anywhere. I've got lots of like mentors and allies who are white men, sue me. But also like people who can, through lived experience, identify with your, say, what you're saying. You shouldn't look at them across the table and think, I've got to like beat this bitch down. Yeah, absolutely. The first chapter I ever wrote, which has now got a different name, but when I first wrote it, it was called Female Competition is a Scam. Because mm-hmm. there's no need, there's no need to look around the room and see the most amazing person and be like, I've got a killer. Instead, we could look at that most amazing person and be like, friend? Because mm. obviously we're better as friends, we're better as collaborators. Like, so yeah, I totally agree that that idea that there can only be one, which I think is 100%. even more prevalent for marginalised people, is an absolute scam. Yeah, I think it, it's designed that way because yeah. you think about jobs for the boys, boys, the boy, the old boys network, the old boys club. They're constantly doing each other's favours, slapping each other's back, scratching each other's back, looking out for each other, recommending each other, and then. I've seen it in the corporate world. It's like women feel like there's only one spot at the top for a woman. So if Mm -hmm. I help you up, you might get it and I might not get it. Like Mm -hmm. it's one. Not understanding we can create more. If there's more of us as we go up together, we will create more spaces. If you keep thinking there's only one spot at the top for a woman or there's only one spot at the top for a black woman, you're buying into that male white supremacist view that there's only well we've decided there's only one spot at the top for you we can make more we can create our own microclimates for success and turn those into macroclimates for success i totally totally agree with that but we won't if we keep edging each other out no absolutely but i think a lot of it is not our fault i think a lot of it is because businesses or organizations do act as though there only needs to be one. We've got Mm -hmm. one person, we've got one woman, we've got one black woman, we've done our job. And so it's normal that people would feel competitive if that is the reality of the organisations that they're working within. But if we can make organisations change that, if we can say to them, having one black woman, having one woman, having one Mm -hmm. neurodivergent person is not enough. It's nowhere near enough. We have to make the businesses make those changes instead of saying to women, you're thinking wrong. Absolutely. Absolutely. I saw um, on Twitter just before we did this, um, John Banville saying, could I win the Booker Prize now as a white straight man? Uh, And then he says, I despise (laughs) this woke movement, the 2005 Booker winner said. And uh, someone called James Rawson said, it has been three years since George Saunders, a white straight male, won the Booker Prize. A white man won the prize this year. And a straight writer shared the price last year. So I'm going to go with probably, yeah, you could win it, John Banville. And I quote tweeted it saying, what John Banville means is, I miss the time when only a straight white man could win the Booker Prize. I -hmm. liked the small pool I used to swim in. It was easier to be best. Now they've let everyone in the pool. It's harder to be best. And with a variety of judges, what's best has sometimes changed. That's where that impetus is coming from. It's like, Mm-hmm. I, but I liked it when it was only us because mm-hmm. it's actually, of course, it's easier to be best. But at that time, all of those white guys were endorsing each other, giving each other quotes for their books, uh, judging each other as worthy. And as women, we've got to get on that and say we need a new girls network, not an old boys network. And 100% white women 
need to be constantly promoting black women, giving space to black women and brown women, platforming, endorsing quotes for books, all of that stuff absolutely have to be. It's so important now. Yeah, I think I hear a lot of white people or white men saying like, oh, there's this job I want or this opportunity, but I won't get it now because now's the time for black women or people of color or minorities and stuff. And as someone who has uh, calls herself a triple threat minority, mm-hmm. um, I feel like I've been told a lot of the time, be so good that they can't ignore you, which is something that you have to be as a woman, as a marginalized person, as someone that people are going to overlook. But it's something that if you're in an extremely competitive field, you should be doing anyway. You should mm-hmm. be tr- like, you should be striving to be the best and not just okay. Like if you're like if you have all the sort of tools at your disposal, then you should be trying to be the best in your field. And I'm like, you just have to be better. And obviously white men have things that might hold them back. Those things should be addressed. But you shouldn't be acting as if something has been cut off from you when it hasn't. There's just been more people let into the race. More people yeah, in the absolutely. pool. More people in the pool. And um, like nothing's been taken away from you. It's just that things were given unquestioningly for a long time. And like, be thankful that you have that foundation to build on. But now we're going to start sharing things out, please. Completely. And I hope that stays, but I think it will. The more that we all say we want this to be the new shape of the world where excellence is excellence. And also, as I said, you know, with different judges, what's best changes. I remember once going to an independent film uh, festival with uh, Susan McComa and we, we watched a film and we came out and she said, you know, these films about a white man who'll he buys a piece of pizza, then he walks along the street and he drops the pizza and a bird eats it and he looks at it and he thinks about life and he thinks about mortality. And then he gets on a train and he looks out the window and he sees the same bird. Um, I want to be in a movie like that. Because <laughs> I'm never going to get that. It's always it's always about the, the oppression of the black female experience mm. or mm. the quirky best friend who boys up someone else's experience she's just like i just want to be in a movie about how i look at the sky and think about my immortality and fall in love with someone and but can't really say hi to them and that kind of stuff um so i'm not going to be surprised if prizes aren't given in the next five to ten years for that experience because it's we've just seen we're saturated guys we're saturated it's a soggy market to be honest i mean a white woman's market is a lot moister more moist. I know a lot of people don't like that word. A lot more moist than the black female market, which is barely damp. You are um, going to be such a natural on OnlyFans. Just keep saying moist. <laughs> moist. The white women market is moist. <laughs> oh, so that was a bit. That was a bit Radio Four. Yes. No, I yes. think that was good OnlyFans. Mm. Next on Radio Four, Sophie Duker with Only Moist. <laughs> Only moist. Hi there, this is Tom, the producer of the podcast, with a quick message from our friends at Refugee Community Kitchen in Calais. They are desperately in need of volunteers who can come out for two weeks or more. No cooking experience is necessary, just a willingness to learn and get stuck in. They'll teach you everything you need to know from prep to cooking to serving. Go to refugeecommunitykitchen.com slash volunteer to sign up. That link's also in the show notes. And they can provide all of the needed documents that you need to come over, but do also contact info at refugeecommunitykitchen.org 
if you have any questions. Please, please, please do consider volunteering for this. It would make all the difference in the world. And now back to the podcast. Um, I saw a film called The Happiest Season recently, a Christmas film called The Happiest Season. Tell us about this because it's getting a lot of hype on Twitter. People seem to be polarised about it. It's a lesbian uh, Christmas movie. It's a lesbian Christmas movie. It's been uh, marketed as the queer rom-com all the gays wanted. And uh, I've seen a beautiful uh, comment, I think, on a thread that Grace Petrie started. Beautiful comments about it, which sort of renamed the film The Happiest Season as Het Out, uh, a play on the film (laughs) Get Out, because that is very much what it is. I think the thing about this film, which in a way is analogous to the experience of marginalised people in whatever area when you're watching uh, or consuming content about yourself, is that it is quite traumatic. It Mm. is kind of really, it's like people tuned in, I think primarily because they wanted a a gay old time uh, in the Christmas sense and in the lady gay sense and what they got instead in my opinion was a lot of pain and i think people are tired as susan wacoma said of seeing themselves reflected only in certain Mm. ways and only in certain areas Mm. either very painful ways or kind of trivial ways and just having more people reflecting different things will show that there's so many ways to be gay and happy or black and successful Mm. or a woman existing in the world than just the ways that you know, the usual panel of people have decided. Mm, So interesting. So it's not a happy story. I sort of had it lined up in my head as something to watch as like, you know, a fun LGBTQIA romp, but is it not that? Is it a lesbian, it's a wonderful life where you end up crying at the end, but out of happiness? I haven't seen it's a wonderful life. That's fine. We're confessing this. Absolutely don't have to have, it's Jimmy Stewart having a male angst. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that The Happiest Season, it is technically a rom-com, but it's not as fun or as sexy as it should be. I think it ends up being a little bit of a coming out tale. Uh, okay. there's obviously it's a rom-sad there's, rather than a rom-com. Yeah, it's like a rom... Uh, wom? Like a wom, wom, wom. I think it would just be nice to have something that's someone said, like sort of have like a lesbian that like gets kissed underneath some mistletoe and then she thinks she's an elf. It's just something that's more in the spirit of Christmas, something to uplift people rather than just... All the pain. All the pain all the time. Which I think is necessary and it's one side of the experience, but I think it's not the uh, joy, not the joy we wanted. I'd say watch it so you can tweet about it because people are going to be chatting about Aubrey Plaza and Kristen Stewart. Kirsten Stewart suits for a long time to come. The problem is when you get so little, the thing that comes out has to please everyone. Everyone gets so disappointed because it can't be 10 movies if it's only one movie. Mm-hmm. And I think what it shows is we need more lesbian Christmas movies because one is not going to feed every part of everyone. If they'd only done a sort of happy body swapping with an elf lesbian, people would go, but the reality of that is actually can be quite painful at Christmas because yeah, my girlfriend doesn't think she's an elf. Or, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think we just need more yeah. We just need more, 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 more. You can't have a flea bag because it's not I May Destroy You. You want and need both. And then more and more and more. Like, you don't, it's no good just going, oh, women have to tell every woman, every story that a woman tells has to be all of the stories a woman can tell. Mm. Every black story has to be about every black person. It's just not how it's going to be. So we need more, I would say. Yeah. We need more and we need some happy lesbian 
mistletoe stories. What's the story you would pitch, Sophie Jika, if you could do your lesbian Christmas film? Oh my God. Okay. My lesbian Christmas film, this is a lot of pressure, but as you've said, it just it it, it can be pretty weird. It can just be one uh one sort of thing. Uh so I think maybe it's called Eggnog. It's about a lesbian couple mm-hmm. that have been together a long time. One of them wants to give her partner the greatest gift of all, uh, which is to freeze her eggs. But she wants it to be. So I, I think it's. Oh, I think I there's like more this. time needed in development. No, Maybe no, it's no, like no, this egg, is good. Okay. This is good. Egg she wants good. to freeze. She wants yes. to freeze her eggs. So she. Um. She. But but she wants to do it. Uh. Do it. Uh. As a surprise. Yes. Uh, which I don't think is technically possible or legal or ethical, but she yeah, kind of wants your to. Own. Oh, she's trying to freeze her partner's eggs. No, that that sounds creepy. That's more creepy. She wants to freeze her own eggs. Yeah, better. Maybe she has frozen her own eggs. Uh, maybe okay. Maybe it's a secret. Pre- maybe the film starts in January, February, March, mm-hmm. April. <laughs> she wants, Nine months she's before Christmas. Have a secret, secret <gasps> pregnancy which she's been hiding from the woman she has sex with and she wants to give birth on Christmas Day and give her partner a little eggy baby. <gasps> like, a a virgin, like a virgin birth. So, like a so virgin that it, birth. So that they might give birth to the It's to a long-distance lesbian, lesbian relationship. She has frozen her eggs and got their best friends, who's probably played by Dan Levy, best <laughs> friend's sperm. Yes. She really wants it. They're going to meet up on Christmas Day. Boy. I look. I like this, and um, our executive producer will get back to your agent. Um, Thank you. We think we might have some notes about ethics. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know what I do like about this, Sophie? Actually, is I like the idea of it's a sort of reverse Mamma Mia. If you were to give your partner three fertilized frozen eggs on Christmas morning, <laughs> and they have to choose because they've all been frozen, because you want this to be a surprise, they've all been frozen with a different friend's sperm. Oh my god! um, (gasps) So this is my yes and. This is we have to write this together now. Um, Yeah, this is beautiful. uh, Under the tree, one's called gold, one's called frankincense, one's called myrrh. We'll work out why later. Yeah. And when she opens them, she's like, "This is the baby that we could have. This is the fertilized egg that could turn into an embryo, that could turn into a fetus, that could turn into a baby." With our friend Dan Levy. Yeah. This one is with your brother and it's my egg so it would be half related to you and this Mm -hmm. one is a mystery sperm donor so we'll never know and um or not until the baby's grown up if it wants to know whatever so the partner who definitely wants a baby because they've already talked about that and it's not scary at length and explicitly explicitly said i'd like you to do something incredibly weird (laughs) to make this happen (laughs) this is the weirdest stocking i've ever had um stocking filler is another good name Stocking um, filler is a better name. Eggnog makes me think of sick and want to be sick. Yeah, but I, I think panicked. stocking filler is good. Um, stocking filler. And, uh, and let turkey me fill your stockings. Oh, turkey baster. <laughs> there's, there's so many good puns. Um, and so she then has to decide which egg they up the duff. Uh, but then once it is up the old, they discover it's the wrong fertilised egg. And yeah. now how do they feel about this? And then they realise that it was meant to be that one all along because of some plot to quote from Tom Tuck. So I think you and I should, yes, listen, if you're listening and you are a film producer and you think there's something in this, this is going to be the yes and antidote to sad lesbian movies uh, at Christmas and you'd like to do this with us and Grace Petrie can do the soundtrack, please get in touch, guiltyfeminist at gmail.com and fund it. 
Mwah. That was me doing a double chef's kiss with two pursed fingers, one pair of pursed lips. Mwah. Stocking Mama filler, mia. turkey baster, eggnog. The movie has three names. We can't decide yet. We'll work something out. This has been great. Guys, is there anything that you came to say that you didn't get to say? No, I just came to have a fun chat and I think we've done that well. We have succeeded in that. Where can we buy your book? All good bookshops? All good bookshops. And is there... independent and black owned bookshops. Independent and black owned bookshops, ideally. And where can we, uh, when can we get Millennial Black? You can get Millennial Black in April of 2021. And you can follow me on my Instagram, which is at official millennial black, where I share lots of anti-racism resources and ask people every week what they've done to be an anti-racist ally and share all of the responses. Amazing work. Sophie, we really love you. You're a phenomenon. Oh, thank you. I love you too. Please come back again. And I'm a feminist, but your lips, my Lord, they are perfect lips, aren't they? They are great lips. I was going to say the collective noun for you two would be probably just like glam gals. <laughs> glam gals. It rolls off the tongue. It is what you both are. Statement glasses, bright red lip. You're popping on the Zoom. Sophie Duca, anything you came to say that you didn't get to say? I mean, I came to chew gum and shower love on Millennial Black and I feel like I achieved one of those things. I don't have any gum. It's really to chew while you're on a Zoom. But I would just urge, I would urge the guilty feminist gang who I love uh, to keep following me. <laughs> Please don't unfollow me. I'd like us to maintain that uh, sort of relationship that we have on socials. If they're not following uh, you, will... you, where can they follow you? At Sophie Jukebox, which is my name, at Sophie Jukebox on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, which I have joined purely to follow the progress of the Ratatouille musical. Oh, wow. <gasps> at tell Sophie Jukebox. Ma, tell me, Ma, like, does he have a car? Wow. Uh, very briefly, the Ratatouille musical, which I have no affiliation with, but will be surely dropping content related to soon, is a musical entirely envisioned by TikTok. It does not exist. It has not been commissioned. It's a musical where people have created songs, artwork, playbills, merch for a fictional musical wow. that does not exist. I mean, I that will musical sing. will exist now. It has to. It, it will. No, it's absolutely Amazing. 100% going to be made. But some people are getting very serious about it being like, oh my God, we're going to have to cut songs. And it's like, no one, no one has done this. It's all <laughs> just teenagers. Um, some, and, yeah. It's just the, it's the joy of musical theatre. And I, I will sing us out with, <laughs> oh, please. Remy the Ratatouille. Go on, go on. Okay. <laughs> so the final song, I think the most used song from the musical is um, Remy the Ratatouille. The red of all our dreams. <laughs> we praise you, oh Ratatouille. Uh, yeah, that's that's how it goes. That's There's why a I saw someone saying the other day, the rat is not a ratatouille. The ratatouille is a dish. The rat yeah. is a rat. And I couldn't understand what they were saying. That was like, yeah. I mean, the sense lyrics sense. of it are nonsense. There's also, there's an amazing <laughs> TikTok that is like a Hamilton-esque, like Lin-Manuel Miranda, like rap for oh, Remy wow. the Rat in Ratatouille. A Ratatouille, if you will. Yeah. Or yeah. if you won't. Like, and now I vibe inside the house of Gusto. It's amazing. Oh. The secret to the sauce is that I cook for linguine. Oh my God. I, I am. scratch for zucchini. What? <laughs> Amazing. It's so beautiful. I feel like we just edit out the rest of the podcast and we just focus on this bit. I think that's wise. Who cares about racism? Let's do this. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
You have been listening to The Guilty Feminist with me, Deborah Francis White, guest co-host Sophie Duker, and our very special guest, Sophie Williams. The Guilty Feminist theme tune was composed by Mark Hodge and produced by Nick Sheldon. The producer was Tom Slitsky for The Spontaneity Shop. Thanks to Rachel Croft, Magina DC, and everyone who made this episode happen, as well as all of you for listening. For more information about this and other episodes, visit guiltyfeminist.com. Oh my god, okay, what's the song that it's like, oh, oh, what's it called? Oh, oh, and it goes, Sweet winter fade, the fruits of summer fade, they ain't. Okay, I'm not going to sing anymore because I've forgotten the, the tune and the lyrics to that song. Thanks once again to our sponsor, which is the fun, witty, razor sharp novel, Such a Fun Age by Kylie Reed. Waterstones Fiction Book of the Month, available now in paperback. I'm excited to read it. Are you? Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com